We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 278. We have three lovely guests today, all from the Spy Coast Farm team from Lexington, Kentucky. I had Lisa, who is the owner of Spy Coast, back in, man, a couple years ago. It was episode 32, and we talked all about the rehabilitation aspect of Spy Coast, which my team and I have used many times. It's an amazing program. But today, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the breeding part of their business, which is what they originally started with when they first founded Spy Coast Farm. Lisa started Spy Coast Farm in 2003 on Long Island, New York, and moved the farm to Lexington, Kentucky in 2008. She hadn't done much with horses until the age of 42, where she started joining her daughter, who had been taking horseback riding lessons, and decided to start taking some lessons herself. Joining Lisa is Emily Ashton, who has been with Spy Coast since 2017 as their breeding office manager. Her main duties are client communication, stallion and mare matching, shipping and coordinating fresh or frozen semen for outside and inside clients, and monthly billing and horse health records. Our third guest is Dr. Modesty Burleson, who has been the reproductive vet since around 2010 and also is Spy Coast Farm COO. She graduated from the University of Pennsylvania Vet School and went to Virginia Tech for her undergraduate degree. She's also from Pennsylvania, and besides being an integral figure at Spy Coast Farm, she runs her own thoroughbred breeding operation with her and her husband in Midway, Kentucky. So without further ado, please welcome our guests from Spy Coast Farm, Lisa, Emily, and Modesty. Hi, ladies. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I feel so honored to have, you know, part of the Spy Coast team on. I know, Lisa, you and I had done... um, an episode earlier on, but today I thought it would be so fun to talk about the breeding component of what you do over at Spy Coast. So first of all, tell me a little bit about how the three of you kind of got started in the equestrian industry to begin with. Well, I'll start. Um, I think everybody has heard by now that I got involved when my daughter started riding at age eight. And um, I thought that looked like good, uh, exercise. So that's how I got started. And it really, uh, my involvement in the equine industry really took off when she started going down to WEF um, at about 14 years old. So, and and everything sort of blossomed from there. Yeah. So um, this, this is Emily speaking. And for me, uh, my mom grew up riding, my grandmother rode. So I, of course, also rode and that's how I got, you know, interested in the horse's it took me from Pennsylvania here to Kentucky, where I went to school, and then eventually got me here at Spy Coast. And this is Dr. Burleson. I started riding when I was six years old, and I had the dream come true Christmas and got a pony in my front yard when I turned when I was nine. And I've been riding ever since. And I knew when I was nine years old that I wanted to go to vet school. 
So I am from Pennsylvania and I also moved down to Kentucky and met my husband here and I've been here ever since. (laughs) Wow. So you're one of those special rare vets that wanted to be a vet as a kid, like all of us wanted to be, but then you actually did it. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. That's awesome. Um, Well, obviously Spy Coast is known for so many things, but one of your primary specialties is breeding, um, specifically focused on the hunters and the jumpers. So what would you say is different about the Spy Coast breeding farm and, and the program that, you know, offers everything that you do in terms of breeding? Um, I think probably the most unique thing about Spycoast Farm is that we offer everything here, you know, from consulting with people on their breeding, what they want to breed, and then we, you know, have the horses here, we fold them out, we do ICSI here, uh, at least the O-site retrieval, we do embryo transfer right here on the property, uh, we also do training and we can do rehab and fitness. So what's truly unique is that we have three resident vets on staff and uh, they're able to oversee the whole program. So you get very, very uh, close monitoring of your animals. And so all the things that should be done during um, the breeding process are done. And uh, also we have a really excellent customer service uh, policy whereby our clients can talk to directly to the vets or even better to uh, Emily Ashton, who is our customer service uh, all around Gal Friday uh, expert. One piece of, I feel like the mission of your breeding program is to make a talented and more affordable pipeline of North America sport horses. Um, Why do you think that this is so needed in North America right now? Well, I think it's always needed. It's always nice to have a good, reliable, low-cost source of uh, sport horses. But over the past um, 10 to 15 years, after identified that a lot of the warm bloods that were being imported were not being utilized to their full potential, which means they weren't being bred to. And we just had some of the best bloodlines here. So I really felt that that was a part of what we needed to do in North America. And... And we need to engage our North American riders in the training and the um, upbringing of young horses as well. So uh, rather than repurposing thoroughbreds, and which is how most of the kids came along, the trainers came along, there are some specific things that they can do to start from the very start with warm bloods that I'd like to see that more present in our industry. Definitely. And I feel like We've talked a bit about this in other episodes, but there are some people who think that breeding programs and young horse sales are stronger in Europe. What would your response to that be? Well, I would agree to some extent because they've been doing it for generations, but um, our clientele is different than, than European clientele. We have many, many more hunter and jumper amateurs. And so it's important that when we do our breedings, we sort of set our target for for amateur friendly horses to hit the ground. We do of course breed horses that are used by professionals and they do very, very well, but actually ends up being a relatively small percentage. So you really wanna approach all the clients and and that way you can uh, get rid of the other horses that you've bred and trained um, and, and find them appropriate homes. For someone who is maybe just starting to think about breeding a hunter or a jumper in the U.S., 
what advice do you have? What does the process look like for someone coming to you with questions about kind of how to get started? I would tell them exactly what I'm going to tell you now. I would speak to Emily Ashton, (laughs) who happens to be right Right. here. Perfect. (laughs) Yeah. What I would say the first thing to them is to make sure that they have a reproductive vet that they're working with because they need their mare to be uh, examined to make sure that she's sound enough for breeding internally, make sure she has both her ovaries, all that fun stuff. Um, and then you can kind of get down into the nitty gritty as to why are you looking to breed your mare and what is your goal for the foal? Because those are things that are going to help me match your mare best with the stallion, because at the end of the day, it needs to be what you want it to be, or it needs to, um, you know, hopefully reach the goals you have for it. So if you're breeding, if you're hoping to breed a meter 60 Grand Prix horse for your daughter when she's old enough, I might have a different match for that mare depending on if you want to have an amateur hunter for yourself. So keeping that in mind, there's lots of questions that I ask uh, clients, you know, what you love about your mare, what you don't like about your mare. I'll look at pictures, I'll look at videos for pedigree, has she produced before? How tall is she? All those things factor in as to, um, you know, how we match your mare for you the best way. And also Definitely. from a veterinarian standpoint, you want to start with the um, reproductive exam, but it's important to have a good history as well to know if she's ever had foals, if they did embryo transfer when she was younger in Europe, because sometimes they may have had complications or issues foaling that you run up against. And also, the most important thing, even if someone's not going to breed a new mare that they buy right away, is to do an exam, make sure they their uterus looks good before they just stick them on regimate to show. And if they need a Caslix, go ahead and put one in because then when you decide you do want to breed, it's going to make it a lot easier because um, your mare will be ready to go. Do you have brood mares at Spycoast? Like, let's say there's a, someone who wants a baby but doesn't have the mare. Yes, we Lisa has her own herd of mares, and there's some that we give a year or two off and see what their foals are going to do before we decide to breed them again or who we're going to breed them again. And actually, um, even last year, we, we leased a mare to someone because she stands a stallion here and she wanted a foal by her stallion, but didn't have a mare. So we found a good one that would cross and then got a foal for her. Is there, I mean, and I know this varies greatly, but as far as the finances of, let's say you have your own mare, you're looking to start the process of, you know, breeding and and having the baby is there any is there like a type of ballpark price point of the the process that you give your potential clients it can range a lot if you breed a mare to carry with fresh semen not including the stud fee and everything goes perfect on the first go round it should cost about ten thousand dollars to get that hole in the ground that's without the stud fee that's without the stud fee right so if so by extrapolation, if you decide to do embryo transfer or ICSI, that's going to add cost onto that process. You know, and it all depends on how many times you want to try and if your mare's dirty and a, and a lot of other things. So um, that's why we try and encourage people to bring, if they're going to bring their horse to us, or even if they're going to bring it to any reproductory vet, they should make sure she's had a breeding soundness exam first and, um, you know, present clean when she's ready to be bred because you can reduce a lot of costs. But that 
ten thousand is to board the mayor and care for the mayor for the whole year and then fold the mayor. So that's here. That yeah, would be here. Yeah, roughly. But if you're looking at just the finances of breeding at home, then breeding to carry would be one to three thousand dollars. Embryo transfer is five to eight thousand dollars, and then ICSI is eight to twelve thousand dollars. Got it. Okay. And obviously pairing horses together, I, that I find that like so interesting and I feel like it's like a good combination of like science and like an art form to like find, you know, what's compatible based on what your clients want and what would go well with the mayor and the stallion. Um, can you dive into that approach and process a little bit more about pairing the horses together, kind of what you're looking for from a performance and vet perspective? Yeah, well, I'll start that and then I'll let Emily take it over. Uh, the reason why we feel like we're somewhat, and listen, nothing's 100%, right? You're going, you're playing the numbers here. Um, but because we breed, you know, about 50 or more a year, and because we have stallions on site, and because we've tried different stallions, we have a little bit of history now to see whether, let's say, a sire breeds consistently, or whether a mare breeds consistently, or what kind of things do they do? Like, does a mare consistently throw long legs? So, you know, it's that kind of data that gives us a little bit more of an edge. We've been doing now for 12 years and we also work with the training side. So we get to see even how they grow and how they are trainable. So some, you know, some horses grow very quickly and then they level off. Others grow just gradually or slowly. So, so you're going to adapt yourself to this as you, as you train them. But those are the things that Emily keeps very close tabs on. And even about her relationships with stallion owners and other breeders is such that she's able to ask questions like, you know, how does Emerald breed? Does he breed consistently? And so those are the kinds of things that she's, I used to have that database in my head, but now it's in Emily's head. <laughs> She's younger than me. effort <laughs> for sure. But it's it's yeah. a matrix, okay? You're looking at a lot of different things. Um, not only the mare's quality, but the stallion's qualities. How those breed, but also you know how does the mare breed? Can she use fresh semen? I mean, can she use frozen semen, or does she need to have fresh? You know, can she do ICSI, or does she? need to do, or can she do embryo transfer? Or does she need to do ICSI? What the quality of the semen is coming from Europe in particular, the frozen semen, how much blood, uh, not only do they have on their pedigrees, but how much do they really translate that blood percentage into their behavior? We've all seen horses that should have all the blood and yet they're really lazy and you've got to kick them on all the time or vice versa. So those are the kinds of you know, it's, it's a lot of variables that go into this equation. And then of course, at the end of the day, it's crapshoot, right? Hopefully, yeah. hopefully you'll get what you, what you tried to study to put together. I'll just add that the one nice thing, like how Lisa mentioned is that we have had our stallions for a fair amount of time. We've done the research on what they produce, seen what they produce. So we have a good handle on what we can what we can consistently see in the foals from the stallions aspect. So a lot of the mare base in the U.S. are maiden mares, so they've not produced before. Um, and so we can kind of take a look at her confirmationally, see how she's jumping, and compare it to you know what 
the mayor owner wants and what their goal is, and then find a stallion that's going to help from their end what they can, you know, consistently pass on to influence the mayor the way that they wanted to. Well, we also, we also look back at their dam mm-hmm. lines and how their dam lines, their first dam, their second dam, their third dam have been producing. And because we have found over the years that the more, you know, it's like breed the best of the best, the old adage, breed the best of the best. The more you, if you, if your goal is to breed a meter 60 horse, the more you breed to meter 60 horses to meter 60 horses, the more meter 60 horses you're going to get. If you try and breed a meter 60 horse out of a meter 45 mare, it, unless she's from certain dam lines, you're going to have more difficulty. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Horse. Do you have a lot of clients come to you with the exact stallion mare pairing that they want? Or do you have more clients wanting you to kind of wanting your help and expertise? Yeah, some sometimes they do. And uh, either even if they do have that in mind, I still like to ask the questions because, you know, the mayor owners don't always know what we know as mm-hmm. stallion owners. And so if they are in love with Shaq and their mayor tends to be small and they want to add size, he's not going to add size. So that's where I'll come in and tell them those things. We're not going to tell them not to breed, but I'll tell them, you know, you're not going to, you shouldn't expect to get hype for your mayor. So and sometimes it's a great match. They know what they want. They see it. And it's great. Other times, um, you know, I'll fill them in as to what they could expect with what they have their eye on. Probably the most common thing we have happen is an owner will want their mare bred to a very high profile uh, stallion overseas that we can only get by frozen semen. And the quality of the semen may not have been consistent over time that we've seen others breed to, or their mare can't tolerate the frozen semen. You know, they're all those kinds of things. So, you know, sometimes we have to say, or you just can't get the semen. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to present them with other alternatives. But at the end of the day, we do want it to be their decision. We do get some people who say, oh, pick pick a stallion out of these 10 and uh, I'll be happy with that. We'd rather not make that decision. We, we really need our owners to make the decision for themselves, given the, the information that we try and provide them. EcoGold has always been on a mission to modernize the saddle pad and improve your horse's safety, comfort, and performance. EcoGold has really continued to be at the forefront of innovation. I personally am so fortunate to be a part of a top team in the hunter jumper world at Heslink Williams, and we only use EcoGold's fitted pads for showing. We're in good company because Olympians like Boyd Martin, McLean Ward, Jacqueline Brooks, Jessica Phoenix rely on EcoGold pads every single day. So to get more information about EcoGold, you can visit their website at ecogold.ca. That's E-C-O-G-O-L-D dot C-A. Is the mayor's compatibility with the type of semen just based off of history or is there something with the mayor's, you know, genetic makeup or build or anything that you can look at from a vet perspective that helps you determine which route would be most successful? Depending upon the age of the mare is like number one thing. Okay. Fresh semen is always going to be more fertile and easier to get a mare pregnant no matter what the age. But if you use frozen semen, 
you should still have 70% pregnancy rates if it's good quality frozen semen, but the extenders tend to cause an inflammatory reaction in the uterus. So if you have an older mare that's a maiden mare that's never had a baby before, she can't get that extra fluid out. And so sometimes it causes a really severe post-breeding endometritis. And so that's not ideal um, for trying to maintain a pregnancy. And then some semen quality is so poor that even if you put a full dose in the uterus, the mares are not gonna get pregnant. So then your only option is to do ICSI, where you harvest the oocytes out of the mares ovaries, and then you fertilize, you snip one of the straws into like one tenth and use one sperm per egg and fertilize in vitro. What would you say are like the main factors that make good semen versus poor semen? Well, what we're looking at is motility and morphology. And then the most important thing is just your pregnancy rates. You've got to use, you know, even if it looks good under the microscope, it doesn't always make a pregnancy. But stallions normally have better semen quality when they're younger. If they're frozen while they're showing or traveling or competing, or if they've had a fever, then it damages the sperm cells. So sometimes some batches of frozen semen is good, whereas others are bad, even if it's within the same year or the same month. So it varies a lot. So when you think about it, let's say some of the, let's take European stallion X, and he's been breeding fresh semen in Europe all season. And then let's say they're gonna collect for uh, export to the US after that. I think it's safe to say we could expect to see a decrease in his fertility rate if he's been breeding regularly, you know, for the main part of the breeding season, you know, so we don't, or, or if he's been in show or if he's been injured and had some medications that might alter his fertility, there's all kinds of things that can affect the fertility of frozen semen. And even who's freezing the semen, you know, is it being done in someone's kitchen or is it being done at a high profile veterinary hospital? Mm. Why not breed year round? And what is the season? What are kind of, give me kind of the rundown of why there is a certain season or time of year. Well, I'm so glad that you asked that question. (laughs) Because now the breeding season is all year long. (laughs) (laughs) So um, because of all the advanced reproductive techniques that we're doing, if you flush an embryo or do ICSI, we are now freezing the fertilized embryos. And then you can thaw them in the spring and transplant them into recipient mares when they're ready and cycling. If you're breeding a mare to carry or embryo transfer, you normally have to do it during their breeding season. So mares respond to the daylight length. And so they come into their natural season, normally around March. And so we could put them under lights starting in December to have them start cycling closer to early February. But generally after July, they start to shut down and go into anestrus and they don't cycle as well. But from October through February, when they're normally out of their natural heat, it's the perfect time to do follicle aspirations and harvest the oocytes to then fertilize with ICSI and freeze the embryos. So that is what we are doing this year, about three to four mares per week. Wow. That's awesome. Once the breeding has been like completed, successful, what happens next? So once you breed your mare, we check them the next day for ovulation or you breed them at ovulation. 
if it's mare that's if it's a recipient mare or mare carrying, we check them for pregnancy at 14 days and then again at 16 days to make sure they don't have twins. Then we check them at 28 days for a heartbeat and 42 days. And then again around 60 days, and then we check all of them in the fall. And what we do is we group them into about 10 to 12 pregnant mares per field. And we generally have about 50 foals per year. And um, of those, half of them are recipient mares. But one of the other things that Dr. Burleson makes sure happens is these mares have to continue to get vaccinations on a schedule during their pregnancies. And that's something that's occasionally missed for the at-home breeders. I mean, they certainly can give them, but sometimes people are in an area that doesn't have, don't have a um, reproductory vet right nearby. Um, and, and sometimes that gets missed. I feel like this is totally not true, but in my head, it feels true. Why does it seem like mayors give birth to their babies, like always in the middle of the night? Because it's the most inconvenient time. <laughs> <laughs> they know. <laughs> We actually, this year had several first thing in the morning, like they literally turn them out in their fields and they lay down and fold five minutes wow. after being outside in the sunshine. And to be honest, besides all the other mares being in the field, folding outside in the grass is the best place to fold a mare because it's so clean. It's easy for the babies to get up and they have less chance of getting any kind of infection than the stall, but it's hard to monitor them outside. <laughs> right. Right. Definitely. Something else that makes Spyco stand out, I feel like, are the additional services that you provide beyond breeding. What has led, I guess, to maybe the expansion of these additional services like rehab and education? Because originally it was, um, I feel like the breeding program was kind of the start and then, and then you added on additional services. Yes. So that's sort of a, a look into my brain. If you look at the way this place was developed. So yeah, we did, we did start with the breeding services and then of course horses grow up and they need to be trained. So we very quickly added the training program. And then as a result of my hiring Dr. Burleson for the, for the repro program, uh, we began to see other things that we could be doing to earn more money. So that's kind of where the where the CEM quarantine started. And then we also had stallions. So she oversees the stallion station as well. And then as the horses became older, the ones that were in training, I started seeing, oh, I'm paying a lot of bills for just typical sport horse stuff, you know, whether they come in lame or something, or they got a cut or something like that. That and the ability to take embryos off of mares while they're in rehabilitation situation, while they're on rest, is what spurred me to open the um, rehabilitation and training and training center. We do have a lot of thoroughbred farms around here and they prep their horses um, for the sales. So they bring them in to use our uh, water treadmills and things like that. So once I started the rehab and fitness center, I hired Dr. Vargas, Dr. Julie Vargas, and so she, she oversees the rehab and the fitness center, but she also does double duty by look, overseeing all of our who are in training. So basically it, the, the economics of it, of it is, is that I, for their salary, I get, which I would call wholesale for me, I get to bill out to the client's retail. 
And that um, not only pays for the veterinarians themselves, but it also brings in income. So that's why it sort of organically grew, grew into all these other divisions. And finally, especially with, well, just before COVID, I opened up the Equine Education Center. And that's because we do a lot of training. We, we have a lot of externs in, or a lot of interns. And I wanted to take the opportunity to bring in other people so that they could get exposed to them. And so we, it's a method of bringing all these other people in the industry to us. Um, they use our facility and we get the some of the knowledge that they bring to us, whether that be you know, a pharmaceutical company or the International Society of Equine Locomotive Practitioners, AAEP, a USEF uh, judge training, 4-H, all these folks at Kentucky Farm Bureau, they all come to us and use our Equine Education Center. And we have eight wet stalls there. So for actual clinical training. And so we monetize our herd, including our retirement herd of our retired horses. And we charge people to use those horses to do whatever they're learning how to do. Let's say ultrasound dispensary or something. Very cool. And I, I love, I mean, it is such a convenient location being like literally next door to the Kentucky horse park. So I know for us, we have entrusted Spy Coast many times for rehabbing or for, you know, additional services that you offer, kind of like what you were saying, your water treadmill and um, anything from that to like significant injury rehabilitation and have only seen success. So I applaud you definitely for the rehabilitation portion. I think it's such a big part of what you do or it has become such a big part. Um, well, but in terms of breeding, what would you say is something that you are all passionate about that you feel like other people in the industry either just don't know a lot about or don't talk enough about? I would love for people to understand that it's really not that much more expensive to breed a horse over here than it is overseas, especially if you're figuring in the 10,000 that it costs to ship them over here. Beyond that, it's the training that's potentially more expensive here than it is overseas, but they're starting to see problems, a, a, a limit on the number of people who are willing to train young horses over there. Now, I, I hear them complaining about that all the time. And yet I think our, we're starting to build a group of people who are interested in training young horses. COVID really made a difference. People started breeding during COVID because their horses weren't in work as much. They couldn't go to shows and such. So they got some other use out of their mares and their stallions, which was great. And as a consequence, I think we're seeing people buying younger horses. They also couldn't bring horses over from Europe, remember. They couldn't go on their shopping trips. So they had to get their horses from the United States. And I think that really started to understand that we are breeding the same quality of foal over here that they are in Europe. People are buying embryos from overseas and, and bringing them up here. They're buying stock over there as, as foals and bringing it back to the US. And then guess what? We're breeding with those. So, or we're just breeding something as good because we have the bloodlines here. So really the gap is more in the training and the, uh, the opportunities to show these young horses that are indeed greater over in Europe, but we're 
trying every year to build more opportunities to to give up opportunities to show and further train these horses. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, would love to hear from the other two. Yep. So mine is kind of funny, but, and I mentioned this earlier, but I am very passionate about people putting a Caslix in their mare <laughs> because it's only costs about $50 in Kentucky to do it. But if a mare does not have one, they can get infected and it can sometimes cost a thousand dollars up to three thousand dollars just to treat them over two or three heat cycles before you try to breed them so it's so simple they do it on race fillies on the racetracks so they don't suck air and bacteria i think anyone that owns a mare should do one tomorrow wow okay <laughs> that's amazing can you, can i love you, that for those so, who don't yeah. know what a so like has like is a procedure where when the mare is in heat they can suck air through their vulva and then when they're in heat, their cervix is open. So it's just a direct transport for bacteria straight into the uterus. So what they do is they basically- Once um, they're clean. Huh? Yep. Yeah, they make clean. sure your mare's clean first with the uterine culture. But they do a local block. You just do it standing. And you cut little edges of the vulva, vulva lips at the top. And then you sew it together. Basically, almost like a episiotomy, like how they would open the- woman for birth and then sewing yeah. back down what a great Catholic psa vented it. <laughs> yes so my little spiel on what i wish people would know think more about is kind of short and sweet so i think people get kind of caught up in all the details of breeding and they can be overwhelming and they think it's really complicated but if you have a qualified reproductive vet that you trust and you're working with a stallion station, um, a quality stallion station, it's a very straightforward process. And it's a, a solid team effort amongst the mare owner, the vet and the stallion station. And it doesn't have to be a big, scary, complicated ordeal. That's, I mean, yeah, that's a really great point. And I think it will hopefully give people the peace of mind that, you know, as long as they are working with quality people and organizations that, it happens in nature. So being able to do things like what you guys offer, which is able to regulate and, you know, manipulate different characteristics or things that you're looking for um, within the breeding process between stallion and mare. And obviously you guys have done this now for over a decade. Um, it's definitely a proven system. And that's definitely, I think, really good advice to give people that maybe are, have, are thinking about doing it, but haven't pulled the trigger because of the overwhelm. Everyone involved in the breeding industry really wants to get more foals on the ground. You know, they, they typically will bend over backwards for you to, to get that foal uh, on the ground. So you needn't, unlike some other areas of the equestrian industry, <laughs> you don't really have to worry about somebody taking you for a ride as yeah. much through this process. I mean, they really genuinely want foals on the ground. That being said, um, I'd just like to, a word of warning, stuff goes wrong. And um, most often it's stuff that nobody could have foreseen, just like with humans um, having children, that you, know, you can do everything right and still have a less than optimal outcome. And that's, you, you need to be prepared for that if you're going to breed. So this is a, you know, potentially a 25 year long commitment and you, you know, just be sure that you're able to make that commitment 
whether that horse is perfectly healthy and marketable or not. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week.